Okay, no messing about this morning, no elaborate introduction, no beating around the bush. Let's get right to it. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Have a look at your page. What do you see in front of you? In the ESV and in most of the other uh, translations of the Bible that we're going to have in this room just now, about halfway down the page, what have you got? You've got a note. What does the note say? It says this. It says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. So you with me? The earliest manuscripts, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. So what on earth... <laughs> Does that mean? Well, simply it means that in the, the opinion of the vast majority of New Testament scholars, you see when Mark wrote this gospel, he ended it at verse 8. And when Mark wrote this gospel, that he did not include verses uh, 9 to 20 at all, uh, that they seem to be entirely unknown to the uh, early church and the early church fathers, that what seems to have happened is that many, 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 many years later, someone's come along, Someone who has not really appreciated the way that Mark has ended his gospel, and that person has decided to add their own little flourish, their own little touch. They did to add verses 9 to 20. Now, okay, is that a problem uh, for us? I mean, here with me believing in the infallibility, the inerrancy of Scripture. Do I now have a problem with the reliability of the Bible? Is that, I mean, is this, a, is this a problem for the Christian church? Well, if you know your Bible, you'll know that this sort of note that we've got here is very, very, very unusual, isn't it? It's not the sort of thing we see very often in the Bible. And you've also got to take into account that there is nothing particularly controversial at all in verses 9 to 20. Do you see what I mean? Very little in those verses that isn't attested or uh, referred to or recorded in the other gospel accounts. So it's actually... It's actually not much of a problem for the Christian church at all. But, <laughs> do you see the wonderful question that it raises for us? Do you? Surely you're asking, having just read this, you're asking, Mark, why did you end your gospel at verse 8? Have a look at verse 8. What have you got? You've got a picture of women running away from the tomb, running in astonishment, running silent, disobeying an angel. I mean, surely we're asking, why, why on earth would you end this magnificent book with that? Well, if you're asking that just now, hold your horses, okay, because that is the end of the section, and we're not quite there yet. So we're going to work through these verses, so we will come back to that question in a moment or two. So let's go to the top of verse, or chapter 16, shall we? And the first thing that we need to note here is this. We see here the devotion to the Lord. The devotion to the Lord. That's our first point. Okay. Now surely, hopefully, as soon as I say those words, uh, the devotion to the Lord, hopefully you all see what I'm getting at. Devotion to the Lord. Surely you see that I'm referring to these three women that we've got in Mark 16. Do you notice who they are? Pay attention to who they are. We've got Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and we've got Salome. And surely, if I'm talking about devotion to the Lord, we're talking here about the affection, the concern that they show 
for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in this portion of Scripture. Okay? Devotion to the Lord. Now, what I want us to do is just to think about, explore that affection, that love, that care, that concern these women have for Jesus. Okay? So, do this. See the devotion in what these women do. Have a look at verse 1. What do they do, these women? And look at verse 1. We're told that when the Sabbath was passed, the women bought spices. So what does, what does that mean? Well, that means that though Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, that they had included solid spices in with Jesus' body in the burial, that actually with the Sabbath looming, what they've had to do is cut short the anointing of Jesus' body. Okay, so what do the women do? The women know that this is true, so at cost to themselves and on the Saturday night, when the Sabbath had officially finished, they go out and they buy, actually they buy what seems to be liquid spices. So it's the idea, friends, of kind of oil and it's mixed with myrrh, it's mixed with aloes, and they buy this as a way, don't think of it as a way of embalming Jesus' body or anything like that. It's not like this was just a way of honoring the dead. So do you see it even in what they do? What do you recognize? What do you see? You see, they, they love Jesus. Don't you see? They go to buy spices. There's a, there's a concern for the Lord, isn't there? There's devotion for the Lord. Then see the devotion in where they go. And it's the most obvious detail in the world. But do you see it? Look at the end of verse 2. Boys and girls, you can maybe look at it as well. The end of verse 2. Where did the women go? They go to... They go to the tomb. They go to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They go to the tomb where they have seen with their own eyes Jesus' body lain. But I wonder, friends, have you ever thought about that for any length of time, the fact that the women go to the tomb? And do you see that this involved risk? It didn't it for these women. I mean, think about it. Over the last couple of days, all of the city has been up in arms. Hasn't it? I mean, all of Jerusalem up in arms about this Jesus of Nazareth and the whole of the city, the crowd have stirred up against Jesus. They've called for him to be crucified. He's a blasphemer. As far as they're concerned. Do you see that even in this act of going to the tomb, these women, they're risking opposition, aren't they? Risking ridicule, risking mockery. And yet, what did they do? They go... And why? Because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see it in what they do. They buy spices. We see their devotion in where they go at the tomb. Do you know what? Most especially, I think this morning, much uh, most importantly, we see their devotion in when they go. Can I ask you just to look at it? It's at the start of verse 2. How would you answer that if I was to ask you, when do the women go to the tomb? I think some of you would say to me, they go on a Sunday. <laughs> Right? What does it say? They go on the first, uh, they go on the first day of the week. And that is important. That's something that every single one of the gospel writers records. They go on the first day of the week. Let's be a little bit more specific, shall we? When do they go? They go very early in the morning. They go very early on the first day of the week. And I'm asking whether you just sense the urgency in their hearts. Do you? Like the previous night, just when they could, they bought the spices. But the next day, what is it? As early as is humanly po- 
possible. They're up and they're out and they're on their way to Jesus. Do you sense the urgency? As soon as they could, as soon as they could, they get to the tomb. They want to honor Jesus. Do you get the urgency? Do you get the momentum? What do you see when you consider these, when these three men? What do you see? Don't you see they love Jesus? And every detail here, it just it screams off the page, doesn't it? They, they love Jesus. And I, I wonder this morning whether you feel challenged when you consider that devotion to the Lord. Does it not? Does it not in some ways rebuke us and hear this love, this love for Christ? I mean, consider even the most basic and fundamental area of the Christian faith. Let us take this. Let us take corporate worship as our example here. Um, one of my colleagues, he's a minister in America, and uh, a while ago he took what was a, a drastic step, I think. <laughs> what the man did was decide to write an open letter to his congregation. And he'd never done this before as far as I know, but he writes a letter to the church. Um, so what was the letter about? Well, the letter was addressing what Hebrews calls the forsaking of the assembling of the saints. Do you see what, do you see what he was doing? He wrote an open letter to the congregation because he felt they weren't being faithful to regularly attending the means of grace on a Sunday morning, and, and, and maybe you can see, I don't know, I'm guessing here, but maybe you can see what was happening. Maybe there was a big American football weekend. I don't know. Maybe their beach houses were calling, but the people of God were skipping church. Now, isn't that, friends, similar problem that we face in the United Kingdom today? Now, now do it with me, though. Like, consider the way that society has changed and consider the pressure that is now on you that perhaps wasn't on us before. Like I, I'm pretty sure parents in here understand exactly what I'm talking about. What is Sunday, parents in here? Sunday is now the, the day for kids' parties. It really is. Like Sunday is now the day for kids' activities, for kids' events, kids' exams. The parents understand that. But isn't it the case that all of us understand that now? Don't we? Like, what's Sunday? Sunday is the day of that all-important half marathon. <laughs> isn't it? Like, Sunday's the day of the, the musical concert. It's the day for family events. It's the day to go to the gym. The devil's very, very clever. All of this pressure put upon the saints. You see it now. My question to you is this. Is that all right? Like, is it okay for us as the people of God, if it's just occasionally to, to skip church and, you know, to prioritize other things? Is that okay? Is it? Consider the women. I mean, such was their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Such was their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ that despite the pressures of society, despite the risks, what did they do? Early, on the first day of the week, they get up, they go to honor the Lord. They go to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that all the more challenging when you consider this tiny little detail? They thought he was dead. 
How much more should we at London City Presbyterian Church ensure that every single Sunday we rise early on the first day of the week, that we come here, not out of habit, not out of ritual or routine. Why do we come? We come to meet with the Lord. We come to praise, to worship, to adore the, yes, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we see here devotion. We see devotion to the Lord. The second thing that we see in Mark 16, though, is the declaration from the tomb. Now, I'm pretty sure every one of us in here just now understands this. That Christianity stands or falls on the event that we're dealing with this morning. We all, in agreement, we all understand that, don't we? That... Christianity, the Christian faith, the Christian religion, my job, (laughs) everything stands or falls on the words that are declared and spoken from this tomb. In Mark 16, the words, he has risen. That is everything to Christianity. So, has he risen? What I want to do just now is to look at some, very briefly, some aspects of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I'm going to do in order for the boys and girls of the church to be able to follow this, I'm going to begin each of the aspects with the same letter. So boys and girls, you've got your worksheet. Maybe some of the adults have got the worksheet as well. I don't know. I'm not going to judge you if you do. The boys and girls have got the worksheet, and in the worksheet you are asked to look for words beginning with the letter F. Okay, so friends, consider this, that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed to you this morning as fulfillment. See, if if you have been in this church for the sermon series... You will remember that time and time again we have talked about what is called an economy of words. Do you remember this? The fact that Mark, in writing this gospel, he loves to keep things concise, doesn't he? That he leaves some of the stories about Jesus out, some of Jesus' words, he leaves them out. Even when he records some of Jesus' words, what does he do? He likes to keep it. He likes to keep it short. He likes to keep it brief. He likes to keep it very concise. Now, get this. Despite that economy of words... In his gospel, there is this expression that Mark keeps documenting and recording time and time and time again. Isn't that the weirdest thing? Like you would think if he is committed to keeping things succinct, he's not going to keep repeating himself, is he? And yet, listen to me, listen. Time and time again, four times in this gospel, Mark records Jesus predicting this event that we are dealing with here. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you are new to London City Presbyterian Church, new to the idea of the Bible, think of that just for a moment. Jesus predicted Mark 16. Do you see the implication? He knew in advance that he was going to defeat death. I mean, what power? He knew in advance that he was going to rise in the tomb. So it is portrayed as fulfillment. Boys and girls, listening, second death. Friends, consider that the resurrection is portrayed to you as a fatherly 
act. And I'm going to need your help. And I'm going to need your involvement here. Would you do this with me, friends? Would you try to picture the scene at the very start of Mark chapter 16? I will describe it. Try and picture the scene. You have got three women. What are they doing? They're walking briskly through the streets of Jerusalem. Can you see them? And what are they carrying? They're carrying spices. And dawn is breaking all around them. Do you see the, do you see the three women? Then all of a sudden, one of them remembers something. And she says to the others, Ah, who's going to roll the stone away from the tomb? And friends, you see the problem. Surely we all get the problem. There would have been across the tomb this almighty stone. Like something like a millstone. Something so heavy, even if there was ten of us in here, we're not budging this stone, this stone across the tomb. And then what happens? The women, they get out of Jerusalem, they approach the tomb. What do they do? They look up and what do they see? They see that the stone has already been moved away. And what you're supposed to appreciate is the sense of wonderment at this. Do you understand? You're supposed to see that those women stop in their tracks and their hearts miss a beat and there's goosebumps in the back of their neck that they realize this is, this is something mysterious that's happening. This is something, something supernatural. And you see that theme, that theme of the supernatural? It just continues in this text because where do the women go, friends? They go into the tomb and I'm asking you, are you with them? Do you see what happens? In the darkness of this tomb, they turn and what do they see? They see a seated young man, except you and I know this is not just a young man, don't we know that? Who is he? We know that he is a heavenly being, don't we? We know that this is, this is actually an angel that they're seeing in the tomb. We know this from the angelic introduction, do not fear. We know it from the authority with which this young man speaks the authority of God. We know it even from what the guy's wearing. Did you see that? He's wearing this white robe. Matthew describes it as a as robe shining like lightning. Do you see my point? This is heavenly, this event. This is a supernatural occurrence that we that we're dealing with here. Are you in here today? And are you asking, how is this possible? How is it possible that the dead can can rise? How is that possible? Don't you see how? Friends, the almighty, eternal, everlasting, all-powerful God was involved in this event. That he, on that Sunday morning, in that tomb, what happened? God the Father acted, and he raised God the Son to life. We see it as fulfillment, friends. But stand in awe because we see it as a father's, a fatherly act. And then the boys and girls, the last F, you ready for it? We see also that this is portrayed as fact. I've thought a lot about this this week. But I'm sure that there are perhaps many in this room just now who do not believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. There are at least some in here who who fit that bill. I wonder if that's you. 
Like, I wonder if you have ever really given this any thought at all, the rising to life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have in the past, I wonder if you've just thought of it as metaphor. Like, that's, that's very common, isn't it? You know, the idea that, what this, this is, this, we're also actually supposed to believe that this happened. You know, that this is a nice illustration. It's a metaphor. It's a picture maybe of, uh, you know, uh, the victory over evil. or A metaphor. A metaphor. Is that what you think? I need you to understand something this morning, friends. I need you to understand that this is God's word. Like this is a book that God has written. This is a book that God has given to us. And this morning, from his word, he is declaring to you, portraying this event, listen, as an event of history. Factual. God portraying this to you today as an event of history. Now, do you see what I mean? I mean, consider what we've just talked about. Consider the fact that we are told, aren't we? I mean, we're told that this happened on a particular day. It happened on the first day of the week. You can trace back history if you want. What else are we told? We're told that it happened in a particular place as well. It happened in Joseph's tomb outside. Of, I mean, the angel even points to the, to the area where Jesus body lay. Do you see it? It's portrayed to us as an event of history. Consider also that the very person in view is established for you. What does the angel say? You seek Jesus of Nazareth. And consider that his death is also confirmed, you see this of Nazareth, who was crucified. Do you see the point? Do you see what I'm saying? Portrayed to you not as a myth, but as an event of history by God himself. And then I want you to consider the most important, most important element here. I want you to think about the first witnesses. Who were the first witnesses here? Three women. Like not just the very people who saw a couple of days earlier Jesus die with their own eyes. They were the same people who saw the spear pierce his side. They saw saw his dying breath. That's the first witnesses. But not just that. Who are they? Three women. The very people. If you were making this up that you would not record as witnesses of this event. Isn't that right? Three women in the ancient world, the very, very people you would never, ever record as having witnessed this event. Why? What did we say last week? Women in the ancient world, not trusted. That the idea that they would give testimony, it was always illegitimate. Women's testimony always had to be chucked out of court. Do you see? Everything here screams to you, this isn't a myth. This isn't a fable. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a lie. This happened. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The death is defeated and sin is destroyed. Satan is dethroned. What does God say to his church? This happened, friends. This really happened. This event is true and it is real. Jesus of Nazareth, today, he lives. He lives. He lives. And then we end with this. The duty of the church. Because I've got, I can't lie from the pulpit. I've got, I can't promise, make promises that I don't keep. And we said at the start of the sermon that we would come back to that question, didn't we? Do you remember the question?
Why on earth does Mark end his gospel at verse 8? Have a look at it again. Verse 7, what do you have? Verse 7, you've got the angel telling the women to go and to tell. Verse 8 is remarkable, isn't it? Because you've got the women running away frightened. Oh, terrified. And initially, at least, they keep it all to themselves and they're quiet. Are you not asking, why do you end the book there? Do you see it? Do you see what Mark is doing? Friends, in ending his gospel like this, he is reminding the church of the plan of Almighty God. Isn't that it? That he is reminding his first readers in Rome who were persecuted and suffering. And he is reminding you in here that God's plan is to use people like these women. Isn't that why he ends it like this? He leaves it open like this to remind you this morning that God's plan is to use failing Christians, flawed Christians, absolutely fearful and frightened Christians, and to use people like you and me and these women to spread the good news of salvation throughout the world, to spread it to the lost. It's actually a really, really encouraging way to end the book. But we will close this sermon series. Uh, If you're visiting us this morning... You probably as well knowing that we've been in Mark's gospel for years. Years. I was a little boy when we began uh, Mark's gospel. I want to end like this. I wonder if you, friend, today, this morning can see the good news of the gospel just in the, the verses that we've looked at today. Because what does the angel tell the woman to do? Tells the women to go and tell a group of people that Jesus has risen, that he's going ahead of those people to Galilee. Now this is my question for you, with which we end. We end here. Who's the group of women? It's in verse 7. Who are the group of women? That, that, who is the group of people the women are told to, to tell? Do you see, boys and girls, verse 7? The women are told to tell the disciples and Peter. And if you've been here for the sermon series, what do you know about that group? You know that this whole book has been about them. This has been a book, a gospel about Jesus and his disciples. But what else do you know about disciples and Peter? They have failed God miserably, haven't they? You know that they have dishonored Jesus and they have abandoned Jesus just when he needed them. (laughs) you know that they have, some of them, even denied knowing Jesus. And yet, what are they going to hear when these women summon up the courage? What are they going to hear? They're going to hear that despite that sin and that wickedness, that Jesus is risen, and he's going to head off them into Galilee. Isn't that marvelous? Despite the sin, despite the wickedness, despite the just the, the, the awful evil that they've committed, that Jesus Christ is risen, and they are going to be reconciled to the one that they love, reconciled to Jesus. Do you actually see that this is a marvelous ending to the book? This is a wonderful ending, because what was those disciples going to hear and understand? They were going to understand the truth, the reality of forgiveness, of sin, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand... 
That's the good news that we have to declare to the world. The good news is not just the church. It's not just about what we do on Sunday. The good news is that through the wrath that he bore on the cross and through the rising from death in the tomb, that even the most wicked people, even the most depraved, despicable people, even they can be redeemed and restored and reconciled by God's grace for God's glory and only through God's eternal Son. That's the good news, isn't it? That's the good news. So what are we going to do? Surely we go from here. And yeah, we go in fear and we go in trembling, but we do not remain silent, do we? That we go out as the church into the world, into the city. We take people by the hand, people who are lost, and we lead them on a journey. And what sort of journey is that? We lead them on the journey to the cross. How it is that the people of God in here this morning should rejoice, rejoice. Because what do you know to be true? You know that the grounds of Christianity is firm, it is sure. Why? Our Savior lives. Our Savior lives. Christ is risen from the dead. Let us pray.